welcome to the Basic Scotland podcast series. These are brief snapshots of topics relevant to pre-hospital care, predominantly within Scotland, and some deep dives into specialist areas with experts from a wide range of disciplines. My name is Dave Strachan. I'm an Army Surgical Registrar, a Basics Responder, and a Mountain Rescue Doctor. We at Basic Scotland are very grateful to NHS Education for Scotland for all their support with these podcasts. Joining us today, we have Caitlin Wilson. Caitlin is a paramedic with Northwest Ambulance Service. Well, she's currently working in Preston. She's been qualified 10 years or so now. Uh, and she's also a PhD student at the University of Leeds, where she's researching feedback and feedback loops for pre-hospital clinicians. But today, she's here to talk to us about hyperventilation syndrome. Caitlin, thanks so much for coming on and chatting. Thanks very much for the invitation. Um, yeah, like I said, I've never listened to a podcast before, so this is really exciting. Thanks for having me, Dave. <laughs> I feel privileged to be sharing your first time. Let's dive into the meat of it. And what exactly is hyperventilation syndrome? What are we talking about here? So hyperventilation syndrome, the definition is breathing in excess of metabolic requirements, which involves a lot of big words. But we often use other terms to describe hyperventilation syndrome, So panic attack, anxiety attack, panic disorder, anxiety disorder, sometimes even dysfunctional breathing, and there's some guidelines associated with that, or even breathing pattern disorder. So I think colloquially, we probably call it a panic attack, and the public would probably understand that more. But in JR Calc, they use hyperventilation syndrome. So when I looked into this for my master's, that's kind of the terminology that I went with. Yeah, it does seem like there's quite a few shoehorned terms. And I guess like many things that have got lots of names, it probably means that we don't necessarily fully understand it. Is that fair? I think that's definitely fair to say, yeah. So there's a lot of different definitions around what that actually means, hyperventilation syndrome. And it was actually first mentioned in 1938, which is insane. Nearly 100 years ago, someone talked about hyperventilation syndrome. But essentially, the basic rhythm of breathing and respiration is controlled subconsciously. And I'm sure a lot of you know far more pathophysiology than I do. Um, But it can be voluntarily overridden. And that, for example, could be due to anxiety. So that then causes kind of central stimulation of the respiratory centers, leading to an increased rate and depth of respiration. So I think that's probably the first thing that comes to mind when we think of hyperventilation is this increased rate and increased depth of respiration. It's difficult to define a population at risk, but classically, what what sort of person, if you can use that terminology, who gets hyperventilation syndrome? So when I looked into this as part of my master's, I looked into the diagnostic accuracy. So I did look at who got it, but I looked more into who did paramedics think had hyperventilation syndrome? And the ones where we were really good at spotting it was in the younger population. And when I say young, I mean kind of over 18, so still adults, but like 18 to 30-year-olds and primarily female. Um, So anything outside of that, we need to treat a little bit more with caution when we think, oh, they're just having a panic attack. Um, And it's kind of also that terminology around that that I think we'll probably pick up on a bit later is that, actually, this is a diagnosis. This is not, oh, it's just a panic attack. It's a valid presentation that we should be dealing with and should be dealing appropriately with. We've got an idea of who it is and what it is. 
we probably need to do the painful thing and dive into the physiology a little bit and, and just try and, at least for my surgical brain, unpick what it is that's happening inside that, that's precipitating this problem. So talk me through how we end up with hyperventilation occurring. Yeah, so I think it's firstly important to think about hyperventilation syndrome and focus on this excess of metabolic requirements. So we're talking about hyperventilation when the body doesn't need to be hyperventilating. So there are physical conditions that require hyperventilation. Exercise, for example, could be one of those. Um, But we're talking about it when there's kind of no organic cause for this hyperventilation. So like I said before, what happens normally is we just automatically breathe. We don't have to really think about it, but that can be overridden um, on altered or stopped. So for example, if we go underwater when we're swimming, we hold our breath so we can voluntarily override and stop breathing for a short time period. But in this case, it's anxiety that overrides it. So anxiety causes central stimulation of the medullary respiratory center um, of the inspiratory area specifically. So we're stimulated to increase the rate and depth of respiration. That then results in faster elimination of carbon dioxide. So we're breathing faster, we're breathing more, we're breathing out more CO2. All the while, the body's CO2 production is staying at the same level. So those of you that are paying attention can probably realise that there's an imbalance there. We're exhaling more CO2 than we're producing. So we then have a decrease in alveolar and arterial CO2. And for those that like proper terminology, that's called hypocapnia. And hypocapnia then, stay with me here, reduces the formation of hydrogen ions and bicarbonate ions. And that's called respiratory alkalosis. So in my clinical practice, I'm probably not going to remember all those different terms. But in essence, we are breathing faster and we are breathing at an increased depth, which is eliminating CO2 faster than we can produce it and is causing an imbalance and leads to a whole variety of signs and symptoms that I'm sure we'll go through in a bit. Yeah, I mean, I guess... Now's probably the point to hit those signs of symptoms because that kind of leads us into some of these, the loops that folk end up in. So uh, how do these people present? What do they look like? Yeah, I mean, I think as a pre-hospital clinician, all of us have probably come across someone who we thought was having a panic attack. And the symptoms really can vary by different body systems. So if we start with cardiovascular symptoms, they could have palpitations, they might be having chest pain or have some flushing. In terms of neurological symptoms, they could have paresthesia to their extremities, sometimes to their face or their lips, occasionally some dizziness or a headache, impaired concentration and memory. And then respiratory, we've talked about that quite a bit. So tachypnea, they might be feeling short of breath or describe some kind of tightness in their chest or in their throat. Some people even have frequent sighing or yawning. But then I was quite surprised by this. It can actually affect your GI system. Um, So like a dry mouth or nausea. Some even describe musculoskeletal problems like muscle pains, tremors, weakness. And then something a lot of us have probably seen this carpopedal spasm where there's tetany of the hands or sometimes even of the feet. 
And then I guess the given ones would be psychological. So this tension, this anxiety, panic, sometimes even a fear of losing control or of dying and general phobias. But having said all of those symptoms, um, a lot of you are probably listening going, well, an MI can have some of those symptoms or a PE can have some of those symptoms. So I think we need to treat these symptoms really cautiously. That would be my emphasis whilst talking about all these signs and symptoms. People might have one or two of these or they might have all of those, but that still doesn't mean that it's necessarily just a panic attack that they're suffering with. So when we're moving to assessment and diagnosis, just keep in the back of your mind, panic attack could be one of the differentials, but let's make it a diagnosis of exclusion. Let's exclude all these other life-threatening events first before we hone in on that hyperventilation syndrome diagnosis. Absolutely. Certainly kind of thinking back to cases that I've been at where the conclusion I've come to is, is that this is a sort of hyperventilation type presentation. A lot of those features you, you describe come up, but I guess it's that almost air hunger that is the classic thing that that, that comes forward in the absence of a, a clear driving factor. So what about if we if we got on scene, we've got this patient who's got a, a couple of these symptoms, what sort of things are we going to see when we're taking a set of OBS? Yeah, I think that's really important is firstly to take those OBS. So I, I've been a clinician for around 10 years now. And I think if we walk in thinking we know that it's a panic attack, we might be lulled into that kind of false sense of, well, do I really need to assess them? So do those OBS, you know, do a physical exam, also take that chest. And that chest, apart from kind of this increased rate, should sound fine. We shouldn't hear any wheezes, any crackles. We shouldn't hear anything that leads us to think that there's a respiratory cause for this hyperventilation. Same with kind of basic observations. Respiratory rate should be elevated. But having said that, with some coaching, we should manage to get that respiratory rate down into a normal level. SpO2 should be absolutely fine. If anything, you might see kind of 99% or 100, you might see slightly increased SpO2, but certainly nothing under 94%. That would be indicative of an organic reason for this hyperventilation. Heart rate, again, should be within normal limits. Having said that, when someone's anxious, that can drive their heart rate up. So yeah, just calm that patient down, trying to remove that source of the anxiety, sometimes removing them out of whatever environment they're in will hopefully help you get that heart rate down. Blood pressure, if there's no organic reason for hyperventilation, then that blood pressure should be absolutely within normal limits for that patient. Obviously, if they normally have a low blood pressure, it might be low. And then temperature, given the current climate, we will definitely be checking <laughs> a temperature. But that, again, should be absolutely fine. Aside from those basic observations, you know, an ECG, can't imagine going to someone who's having a panic attack and not doing an ECG, which again should be absolutely normal. You might even do a peak flow if one of your differentials is an asthma diagnosis or an asthma attack, then why not do a peak flow? Again, that should be normal in that hyperventilation syndrome diagnosis. Now, I don't know what it's like in the service that other people work, but we have end tidal CO2 monitors and if I end nasal cannula 
So we could measure N-tidal CO2. And there is some evidence in the literature that that might be low. And the suggestions that 30 milligrams of mercury could be a cutoff, but that's quite arbitrary and not in the JRCALC guidelines. So kind of treat it as part of your assessment of that patient is what I would say. Some people even suggest kind of breath-holding tests. Again, there's nothing in JRCALC to support this, but you may want to ask your patient to hold their breath. And if they can't hold their breath for what some researchers say, 10 to 12 seconds or 30 seconds, then that might be indicative of hyperventilation syndrome. But that is within the package of the assessment that you've done, so not an isolated finding at all. Yeah, this kind of lack of agreement, we spoke about it right at the beginning, this lack of definition, lack of agreement on the signs and symptoms, it is quite a woolly diagnosis and a woolly syndrome to describe, but you need to be really sure about your diagnosis. You can't have four or five differentials that you're still working on at the end of your assessment. You need to be really clear that the only possible explanation could be hyperventilation syndrome, in which case that's the one you go with. If it's just one of five or six differential diagnoses, then you probably need further assessment at the hospital for that patient. It's really interesting. And it strikes me, you mentioning entitled CO2, it's not something I would instinctively reach for. But I guess the flip side of that is that more and more where I'm seeing acutely sick patients, that's a, a really useful test. And I guess I've never used it before in the reverse sense of it being reassuring that I don't have a significant hypercapnia on my entitled CO2. And what I'm seeing is, is kind of metabolically in keeping with this big hyperventilation. Absolutely. And I think it reassures the patient as well, because one difficulty with these patients is that they're obviously anxious and it can be somewhat, well, not exactly reassuring if the paramedic or the technician who's attending doesn't really do anything. So aside from the benefit of actually finding out whether they're hypocapnic or hypercapnic, even things like an ECG reassures the patient. You know, you can read that ECG and talk through your findings or lack of findings, and that's reassuring to them and hopefully will help you calm them down. The other thing that kind of jumped out at me was that the breath-holding test, which I appreciate is, has got some possibly patchy science behind it, but I've always found things like getting people to read off their list of medications if they've got a, a lot of medications that they take or to tell me their address or spell things, things that kind of functionally make them speak in a longer sentence. If they can successfully get to the end of it, it also helps to, it appears to help to break the cognitive pressure to overbreathe, and and actually they start to self-correct and then feel a bit better and then are willing to buy into the diagnosis and the treatment plan. Yeah, absolutely, Dave. I think that kind of goes on to management of these patients. So aside from just calming them down, which clearly we can't do by just telling them to calm down, that usually has the opposite effect. Distraction is a huge thing. I guess it's similar to dealing with patients who are in pain. If we can build up a good relationship with them and distract them, things that you were just saying about kind of speaking longer sentences, I've seen people asking patients to breathe in through their nose and out through their mouth or mimicking their breathing. You know, the paramedic will breathe with the patient and get them to slowly breathe in and slowly breathe out. 
holding your breath for two seconds in between each breath. That sometimes works. The big thing when I first started in the ambulance service was that patients and their families were breathing into paper bags, which I can't further kind of stay away from, to be honest. There's no thing at all in the literature to support that that would work. I guess aside from distracting people, my emphasis would be on kind of speaking in longer sentences, conversations, distraction, or coaching their breathing specifically without the use of any gimmicks like paper bags. I guess also the the very act of taking your set of obs, getting them to do a peak flow, all of these things are distractive in and of themselves and require them to be still or to focus on an activity. So I guess part of your building that that information for your differential diagnosis is is treatment in itself. Absolutely it is. And sometimes it might be that actually sitting still and staying in that place where they've called you from isn't right for your patients. You might get a sense that actually the giant spider on that wall is what has triggered this hyperventilation (laughs) attack, in which case, by all means, um, remove the patient or remove the spider. um, However confident you feel, I would definitely be removing the patient from the situation and then start your observation somewhere else. A change of scenery or stepping outside kind of the four walls that we've all been in for far too long at the moment might just help them reset themselves. We've kind of touched on the fact that the worry here is that we we miss a diagnosis of something else and then the old-fashioned treatments like a paper bag could be catastrophic so you mentioned a couple of things earlier on but what else do we need to think about in terms of the differential what can we miss here so i think the big ones are probably an mi or a p and really this is how i came into thinking about hyperventilation syndrome is that regionally in the area that I started working in 10 years ago, the guidance was that anyone who is hyperventilating or who might be suffering from hyperventilation syndrome should be taken to the local emergency department. And it was at the time one of the few diagnoses that was kind of excluded from non-conveyance decisions or referrals to out-of-hours GPs. So that's the reason I've looked into it. And that was based on people missing things like myocardial infarction, angina, heart failure even. You know, you can have neurological reasons, stroke, vertigo, maybe even a traumatic head injury could cause you to hyperventilate. And then obviously kind of respiratory conditions, you know, COPD, asthma, pneumothorax, a pee. You could, I guess, have pain if you've got a hernia or an ulcer, cholecystitis, you're going to be in pain, you're going to be hyperventilating. Even endocrine conditions like a DKA um, or kidney failure, all of those would be organic causes for hyperventilation syndrome. You could even have environmental causes, you know, altitude sickness, carbon monoxide poisoning. There's a whole range of diagnoses that these rather woolly signs and symptoms could fit under. So, yeah, I think the emphasis would be on excluding maybe not all of those because some of them might not be appropriate. You know, you might be able to exclude them before you're even on scene, but most of them you're going to have to make a conscious effort to exclude. Why do I not think that this is pericarditis? Why do I not think it's a stroke? 
So one of the ways to do that is to have a list that you're working through. Um, and also then when you're taking a history, you're going to ask the patient about their past medical history, which we would routinely do anyway, and specifically whether they've had previous episodes of hyperventilation syndrome. So if they have, that's quite indicative of this potentially being another panic attack or hyperventilation syndrome episode but that doesn't mean that they can't also have one of these differentials. So, yeah, asking them about past medical history and asking what the patient thinks might have caused this episode. So they might be very familiar with their panic attack symptoms and they've had a situation that's triggered their anxiety and they might know that they're having a panic attack or think they know they're having a panic attack. So even just asking a patient, you know, patients are experts at what they're experiencing a lot of these signs and symptoms like air hunger we wouldn't be able to just be able to see when we arrive on scene so asking them about their experience I think would be really valuable to exclude these differentials. One of the things that I've seen quite commonly is folk who have another respiratory diagnosis like asthma and have an episode of hyperventilation and have taken vast doses of their inhalers um, which has only served to make them more tachycardic, more jittery, and I think sort of perpetuated some of this. Are there any hard and fast ways that we can differentiate between other things causing hyperventilation, or, or is it just a question of waiting and seeing if they get better? Yeah, I think it's a question of waiting and seeing. Obviously, if this was a true asthma attack, we'd expect certain observations that we're doing to be out of range. Mm. And also to simple coaching might help manage their breathing. You know, they might be able to slow that down, but only for a, a very short while. That wouldn't be sustainable because, you know, the respiratory drive would kick in and they'd then start hyperventilating again. So, yeah, the fact that all observations should be within normal limits once we've treated them and coached them could be quite indicative of it either being hyperventilation syndrome or not being hyperventilation syndrome. I've also experienced the flip side of what you're suggesting. So yes, patients do overtreat themselves and, and maybe not think about anxiety, but also the other side where people, especially young women suffering with asthma attacks, are almost labelled with this panic attack diagnosis, sometimes even before we arrive on scene. So yeah, keeping an open mind would definitely be important. Absolutely. So if we go to our patient and we work sort of systematically through, we do a careful physical, physical examination, we take a good set of observations, check an ECG, potentially do a peak flow. And during the course of that and talking to the patient, they relax a little bit, the breathing rate settles some of their symptoms start to settle and improve and we're kind of heading our way into a, a reasonable degree of confidence that this is a hyperventilation episode. What do we need to do? Is there any sort of prescribed follow-up? Is there anything that we can do at the roadside in terms of patient education? There isn't anything officially. So JRCalc supports clinicians to make kind of non-conveyance decisions if all observations are within normal range, and especially in patients that have had previous hyperventilation syndrome episodes. They emphasize safety netting. Uh, so I think in any patient where we're considering non-conveyance, we would be giving appropriate worsening advice. And that's how 
as a backup, if we have made the wrong diagnosis and it is one of these differentials, then giving appropriate worsening advice could then lead to recontact and and hopefully not a, a terrible incident for the patient. So worsening advice in terms of, you know, increased respiratory rate, whether they have any ongoing pain, but there's no referral team. There's no like there's diabetic specialist nurses, there's a falls team, there's no hyperventilation syndrome <laughs> team. I don't think the prevalence is high enough, but by all means, I think I would support patients and encourage them to maybe contact their own GP, especially if this is something that's affecting their daily lives. If it's a one-off, you know, they've been through a traumatic event or something like that has happened and they're able to deal with it, I think that's a different scenario. But more and more we're involved in kind of community care and we might even see patients that we've seen before with a panic attack so I would encourage them to seek longer term follow-up so that this anxiety can be addressed and ultimately that will obviously potentially reduce the prevalence of hyperventilation syndrome in their life. Yeah I guess if we can if we can target some interventions potentially via the GPs to to address that anxiety that hopefully should ameliorate their their symptoms and, and reduce the amount that they're relying on calling. Yeah, that would be ideal. I wouldn't necessarily say that the ambulance service is there to respond to panic attacks, but after everything we've talked through, you know, the difficulty that pre-hospital clinicians have in making this diagnosis, how is a non-clinician supposed to make this diagnosis? Unless this is something that they themselves have dealt with before and it's displaying in exactly the same way and they're managing to you know, calm themselves down. If all those things don't work, then they're likely to call us because it can present like a life-threatening illness. So I'm not surprised that we come across them. And I think it's important for us to know how to deal with these patients and kind of signpost them appropriately to provide best patient care, really, sitting a young woman who's just split up with her boyfriend in A&E and saying, well, we've brought you here because it might be a heart attack. It's probably not best patient care, (laughs) but actually if we can do a really in-depth assessment and explain that all our observations are fine, there's nothing on our heart trace, you know, her peak flow is normal, her entitled CO2 is normal, and signpost her well-being advice, out of hours GP, her own GP, friends and family, I think that's much more beneficial than dragging patients to A&E unnecessarily. Absolutely. It's a really interesting rundown and, and it's something that certainly I see not infrequently and, and I suspect most folk working in the pre-hospital community see it and it can, whilst the, the classic is perhaps the younger woman, actually uh, I've seen it in almost all age groups and it's really hard to unpick particularly as as the age groups get older and there's always that fear that you're missing something more significant underlying. Absolutely and all of well many of the diagnoses we've talked about these differentials are more prevalent in the older population. When I started looking at the diagnostic accuracy for hyperventilation syndrome it did decrease the older patients got so we're slightly less sure about hyperventilation syndrome as patients get older. And and I would certainly advise people to have a bit of a red flag as patients get older, you know, be slightly more cautious. That's not to say that panic attacks don't exist in that age. They, They definitely do across all age groups, as long as we keep an open mind 
and use like the tools that are available to us. And that includes the environment, patient's family. They might be much better at calming the patient down than we are and coaching them to do it. I think we can safely diagnose hyperventilation syndrome in all ages. Fantastic. Caitlin, we've been getting all of our presenters to give three takeaway top tips. What would your suggestions be for basic responders, paramedics, doctors, nurses, approaching somebody where hyperventilation syndrome might be a differential? Three top tips. I might make it three and a half just to be cheeky. So the first one would definitely be to keep an open mind. So make hyperventilation syndrome a diagnosis of exclusion and exclude any differentials before you come away saying this is definitely hyperventilation syndrome. Secondly, it would be to use your diagnostic tools and clinical judgment. So don't guess what your findings might be. You know, they look like their peak flow is fine isn't actually doing peak <laughs> flow. So conduct an in-depth assessment, including history taking, physical exam, and basic observations. And then the last one is what we were just talking about. So red flags to me would be an uncertainty in hyperventilation syndrome as a diagnosis, especially in older patients. And then the last point three and a half would be to emphasize safety netting, especially if you're making a diagnosis of hyperventilation syndrome. Fantastic. And yeah, always a good practice point if you're thinking about leaving somebody at home, making sure that that safety net is, is robust and, and I guess pretty well documented. It would be the other bit of it. Absolutely. Yeah. Good documentation and appropriate as well to whatever diagnosis you've made. Caitlin, that's fantastic. Thanks so much for coming on and talking us through the clinical aspects, but also some of the evidence behind hyperventilation syndrome, because I know it's something, as I say, that we do come across. Thanks for sharing your experience. Thanks very much for having me, David. It's been a pleasure. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland. Basic Scotland.